check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Today is a very special interview with Margaret Goldberg. If you've read Emily Hanford's article at a loss for words, you might remember that Margaret Goldberg is the teacher that speaks with Emily Hanford about this coming to understand that balanced literacy was not working for many of her students and then switching to a more structured approach. I owe Margaret a lot because it was her quotes in that article that led me to give more thought to the problems with three queuing because she was actually an experienced teacher sharing what was working and not working for her. Margaret, to me, is one of the most powerful voices in the move from balance to structural literacy because she has such a kind, gentle way of sharing information, and yet she doesn't shy away from all this important knowledge we need to have. If you ever get a chance to read her blog posts or watch her on a webinar, I highly recommend it. She's one of my favorite people to learn from. So we'll get right into the interview after this intro. Welcome to Triple R Teaching, where we encourage you to think differently about education by helping you reflect, refine, and recharge. This isn't just about trying something new as you educate those entrusted to your care. We'll equip you with simple strategies and practical tips that will fill your toolbox and reignite your passion for teaching. It's time to reflect, refine, and recharge with your host, Anna Geiger. Hello and welcome. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Margaret Goldberg to the podcast. For those of you that have been following along with me on my Science of Reading journey, you may remember that the article by Emily Hanford, At a Loss for Words, is what really caused me to reconsider my balanced literacy approach, and in particular, the quotes in that article from Margaret Goldberg, who is a teacher in California. And most of the people I've talked to in this series really began to change their perspective about how how to teach reading in around the year 2019-2020. However, Margaret was there before us because she was quoted in the article that was published in 2019. So she's here today to share her journey with us and share some insights. And welcome, Margaret. We're so glad you're here. Good to be with you. So can you tell us a little bit, I know you had quite a quite a background in terms of teaching. You've been teaching for a long time. You've taught, you've supported teachers. You've taught different grades. Can you talk to us about what you remember about when you started to shift your understanding from balanced to a different approach? I was a balanced literacy teacher for six or seven years as a fourth grade teacher in a high-performing school. All of my kids basically came to me reading unless there were you know, a couple of kids here and there who would go down the hall for reading intervention. So I didn't know how to teach kids to read from scratch, but I wasn't really confronted with that on a daily basis until I took a job as a literacy coach in one of Oakland Unified's lowest performing schools. Mm. So I went to go focus on literacy instruction in a school where just between two and 3% of students were proficient on state tests. Mm. And I came in thinking like, well, I was a good teacher. I was told that by multiple people. I had high test scores. I'm going to take on coaching other teachers to do the same things that I found to be successful. And the district was rolling out their balanced literacy initiative that had programs like units of study and LLI. And so I was getting a whole lot of training on how to do those programs. My job was to teach other teachers to do that. And I want to say it was maybe no more than two months into the school year. I was like 
this is not working. Mm. <laughs> what was worked so well for kids who could already read, mm-hmm. like long periods of time for independent reading, um, talking about books, seeing themselves as readers, talking about what good readers do with enthusiasm, all of that was falling totally flat at my school. So I was noticing independent reading time in classrooms that involved kids being really angry, like Mm. angry at being left there for long periods of time to read books that they didn't know how to read or being given low level texts that were really boring. And they would do anything they could to avoid having to read during that time. And I was trying to cajole cajole them, to cajole the teachers, like, let's focus on um, the program we were designed to implement. And I realized as I was talking with kids that what was struggle, like the struggle for them was the words on the page. So I remember sitting with a kiddo and being like, your teacher tells me that you're a great reader. I'm going to do this reading record on you right now. I'm looking forward to hearing you read. And she's like, I can't read. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, what makes reading hard for you? And she's like, the words. (sighs) And that was the moment when I realized that was true for so many kids at my school. Um, I ended up doing assessments on all of the kids K through fifth. And I realized that basically none of them knew their short vowels um, and didn't know how to tackle other more complicated spelling patterns. And so that's when I realized that we weren't going to get them what they needed doing this approach that basically had as a prerequisite kids seeing themselves as readers and kind of faking it until they could make it. Mm -hmm. Um, These kids were not down to fake it anymore. Mm -hmm. They had been let down by school for long enough. And I think one of the things that really uh, stuck out to me was that I realized I wasn't the only person who didn't know what to do about it. I realized that as I was asking questions in these balanced literacy trainings, what I was being told was not to focus on the words too much because that's just one part of reading. It's the visual part of reading. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to focus on meaning and focus on structure. And like, don't, you don't want kids to like go too slowly sounding out words because then they'll become word callers. Yes. And I was like, okay, (laughs) well, I had that worry in my mind, but I was like, but I think we actually do need to teach them how to read the words. And that's where I started my journey into reading scientific articles about how does the brain read words and how do you teach children to be able to make sense of English spelling? So you, you saw the problem and you went on your own to just do your own research to figure it out. which is very different from what teachers are able to do now because there's so much out there about it. So tell me, you know, what, how did you know what to study? What really resonated with you and what, what kind of light bulbs went off? Um, I didn't. So I think that's the thing that was so interesting. I would type into Google the questions that I had, like, how do kids learn sight words? And I would get a whole bunch of strategies back, like flashcards and bingo and play this and play that with them. And, you know, all of the strategies that were kind of familiar to me from balanced literacy trainings. 
But it wasn't until I started typing into Google the right terminology to find out mm. the information that I needed that I was actually able to start finding scientific articles that were describing what happens as the brain is processing the letters on the page. So um, I had to get out of teacher publications and into yeah. publications that were designed for other fields. Mm. And it meant reading a lot of stuff that I was in over my head. I remember there was this one time I was reading the Seidenberg McClelland article. And I was like, I can't even pronounce some of the words in here. Like, saccade, saccade, like, what is that? Um, and so, yeah, it was a lot of long nights reading a lot of stuff and feeling dumb. Yeah, and yeah. feeling like I was just in awe of the amount of information that I didn't know that was known by other people. And I really needed to learn quickly how to read a study, how to understand basic terminology that they were using, how to use, like, I can't even think of all of the questions that I ended up asking as a result of realizing I was in over my head, but it was a lot. Was there a specific book or something that helped turn the page for you a little bit? Um, the moment that stands out most clearly to me was that I had been starting to make sense of the infighting amongst the authors that I was reading. So I like kind of made myself a Venn diagram and I was like, here are some people in this camp. Here are some people in this camp. Some people are liked by both of them, but what's going on here? And I like started to realize, oh, like this is seeming like a reading war that's happening. And I've heard about the reading wars, like they were settled many, many decades ago. Why is it that history is repeating itself in this way? And I remember reading the article, um, Whole Language Hijinks by Dr. Motes. And she had a chart in there that was comparing the scientifically based reading research approach, SBRR, with whole language derivatives. And when I saw that, I think that was the first moment that I realized that balanced literacy was actually rooted in whole language. I had thought, if it's got phonics in it, there's no way it can be whole language. I know. But to see it there, I was looking at it and I was like, everything I know is in this one category that is a derivative of whole language. And there's this other approach that I really need to learn a lot about really fast. That's really interesting that you say that because I know for a long time I just dismissed criticisms because like, well, I'm not whole language. Like, I don't totally. memorize word words. study. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got words their way. So I can't be whole language. Um, exactly. But understanding, I think for me, like reading reading um, Emily Hanford's article, the three queuing thing was like, I mean, I literally felt sick when I read it, when I finally realized that I think she's got something here. The first time I read it, I just was like, eh, uh, she, what does she know? <laughs> but then I read it again and... Um, like I, I really felt sick because it was turning everything up on its head. Did you have any kind of any kind of moments where you didn't quite want to go farther and learn, or were you just very excited to just keep discovering things? I personally was really excited, and I loved that the teachers at my school were so interested in it. So I was a literacy coach and a reading interventionist, and I was pulling first graders into my little tiny office space to do lessons with them. I was supposed to be teaching LLI, and then um, when I realized that wasn't going to work, I was also teaching SIPs at the same time, which is a more systematic approach. And so the teachers that I was taking kids from realized that the kids that I was pulling for a more systematic approach to learning foundational skills were the only kids in the school who were learning how to read. 
Wow. And so they started asking me questions like, what are you doing? What are you using? Oh, yeah, we have that in the supply room. It's like covered in dust, like just Mm -hmm. on the shelves. We haven't touched it since we got a grant for it, but never got any training. Um, Let's actually all get together to try to figure out um, how to make sure that every kid gets this kind of instruction. And so we went into it together, asking each other tons of questions, trying to figure things out. I was lucky enough to have a mentor who I could email, like, I don't understand (laughs) how you pronounce the sound. Or like, can Mm -hmm. you explain to me why, you know, you use CK sometimes and K or C the other times or just Mm -hmm. little questions like that. Like I felt like I was getting some support and I started to notice um, that there actually was kind of an answer for everything in a way that I hadn't gotten from the balanced literacy right. community. Right. And so I felt really good about it. I think what was surprising to me was that as I was starting to try to talk with other people in my district and other people who are doing balanced literacy trainings for us, for this cohort of coaches I was a part of, I was surprised that uh, not everybody wanted to learn. I think that was the thing that was hardest for me. I assumed that the enthusiasm that my school felt for this learning was going to be matched by everybody else because who doesn't want kids to learn how to read? Um, But I think what ended up happening is that sometimes when you're really thoroughly invested in an approach and your name has been stamped onto this initiative that you are so proud of rolling out and you have reason to believe that it's the right thing to do, um, it's really challenging to to face the stuff you don't know. It is. And I'm going to have to definitely link to your article. What's the name of that? What is the name of the article you have? About teachers won't embrace the science until it embraces us. Yeah. Can you explain, um, maybe summarize the article a little bit? Um, so I wrote it after I went to a conference and I was sitting in the back of the room and the person was bashing teachers and how teachers just don't know what they don't know. Mm. And I was sitting there and I was like, well, it's, that's true, right? Like I've confronted this. I realized that I didn't know a lot and I had a lot to learn, but there was something about the way it was said. There was something about the attitude towards it towards us that I felt like I can't bring my colleagues with me to this. Like Mm -hmm. there are a lot of, there's a lot to learn in this session. There's a lot to learn in other sessions at this conference. I can't invite anybody here because of the tone. Mm -hmm. And it made me feel really alone in doing this work. Um, And then I was thinking like, why is it that all these people are annoyed with teachers for just not getting reading right? Like Mm -hmm. I started thinking about all of the parent advocacy groups that are really upset about how their kids are or are not being taught to read. And I empathize with them so much, but I felt like it would be helpful for them to know what they were up against, like helpful for them to know what it's like to be part of this warm, inviting community that is balanced literacy um, and what it's going to take to pull teachers away from that. Excellent. Yeah, that I will definitely link to that. There's a lot of good stuff in there. If, if someone came to you and said, what's the problem with balanced literacy anyway? How could you what would be some main points that you give? Um, well, one thing is that no one really knows what we're balancing. Mm -hmm. So it's like, are we balancing phonics with like a love of the meaning of text? Well, not really. Because if you look at the instructional day, there's like 15 to 20 minutes for word work and then like 
you know, 20 minutes for independent reading and then like a little bit of time for direct instruction. Like it's very out of whack if you look at it in terms of minutes. It's also not very balanced if you look at it in terms of like, why would we do the same thing for lower grades as we do for upper grades? Like it doesn't, that doesn't um, seem to make sense with child development. Mm -hmm. So part of it is like how we're using our time. Part of it is, are we talking about like instruction versus independent practice? Is that what we're balancing? Are we balancing um, like phonics with these whole language strategies that there are alternatives to phonics to be able to recognize words? Anyway, my point is just that balanced literacy is unclear. Um, And I think one of the other things that was really enlightening to me is that with balanced literacy, one of the problems is that the words are seen as an imposition to the reader. So they're supposed to be solving words like there's a problem on the page. Um, They're supposed to have these like a wide variety of word strategies that they're supposed to use to be able to try to figure out what the tricky words are. And it's this attitude that doesn't really make sense (laughs) because if you're thinking like we need we need to get our readers excited about the words on the page. Like it, their precision really matters. It's not okay to think, you know, the one that they always reference is like, is it okay to say pony instead of horse? Like, no, it's not. Those are two different, two different things. <laughs> and it's really important that if we care about the author's message, the author's intent, we care about writers and their word choice. If we care about that, then we actually really need to think about giving our readers a different attitude to the words on the page. What would you say to people who have the same attitude that I had back way back, which not that long ago, to be honest, um, that when they're, it's like, it's painful to have them sound out word by word and it's so slow, then there's no comprehension. That's, those are the things that I said. I know how I would respond to that, but what would you say? I'm, I was really scared of that. I remember um, when I was teaching two programs, so one group of kiddos, they were getting the balanced literacy approach and they were reciting their books and they sounded fluent. Like Mm -hmm. they were, they appeared to be like readers and it was so much more pleasant working with them. (laughs) I I loved the, like, just pass out a book and like do a quick picture walk and talk about it. And they're going to like read the book effortlessly. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to do a little bit of writing about it. And then had another uh, set of students that, I mean, they were sounding out everything. So they were sounding man on the mat. And it was just like mind blowingly <laughs> boring. <laughs> and I think what I realized, so I was really scared. I was like, is this what making word callers is? Like, am I doing that horrible thing? Um, But I was promised by a mentor that after that slow, laborious sounding out practice, that every reader would emerge automatic and be able to recognize the words effortlessly. Was that Sheffelbein who said that to you? Yeah. Sheffelbein. Yeah. And so listening to him talk about the grunting and groaning stage (laughs) and being told like that I that there was promise ahead. I was like, I will stick this out 
and see how it goes. And what ended up happening is it's totally true. They came out on the other side. They could read effortlessly, automatically. It made the brain space for comprehension for them. They mm -hmm. could start talking about the things that they were reading. And I could give them books and they would just sit down and start trying to read them. Mm -hmm. Instead mm -hmm. of with the other kiddos, I'd give them a book and they're like, I don't know how to read this book. Because I they needed so much from me in order to be able to get into it. And I think the other thing I started to see with those kids um, who are being given leveled books is that they just wanted to read the books they already knew. They didn't have that enthusiasm for getting new text and, and really sticking it out. And I think that's when I started to realize that one... Both of them require texts that no one's super excited about. Like those boring, predictable books, like no one genuinely likes those. And those <laughs> decodable books, like, yeah, you can try to make some cute ones, but really they're not great literature. It's that one is a more reliable path to get all kids to become fluent. And the other is this path where kids, some kids will start figuring it out themselves they will start to attend to the words on the page, realizing that that's their um, path forward. But other kids just get stuck and they get stuck in those low level texts for years and are unhappy about it. And then as a teacher who's a balanced literacy teacher with kids who are stuck in, you know, BCD, you don't know what else to do besides have them keep working at it. And but they're like you, like Emily Hanford points out in an article, they're just practicing bad habits. They're just practicing guessing. Exactly. They're just practicing. And I, I remember I was I was working with a group of kids at our at my kids' school um, before school a couple years ago, just to help them with their reading. And this was when I was still balanced literacy, and I was giving them like level C books to work on, and you know, they'd be stuck on the word machine <laughs> because that mm -hmm. shouldn't be in the book, things like that. And then and then I finally, and this was before I would really understood all these new other things, but I. I started doing um, short vowel work with them because I realized they didn't know their short vowels. And then we kind of switched to doing that more and I just let go of the leveled books, not really thinking too much about it, except that that wasn't really helping. Um, and if I would have thought about it more deeply, I would have understood and I wish I would have known to get some decodable books in their hands. Um, but the point you make about how they're both inauthentic is really good for people to realize because I know as a balanced literacy teacher, you just love those leveled books and you spent your school spends thousands of dollars on them. Yeah. So th and you that's label your makes... book bins and you label oh, the yeah. books and like, absolutely. I think the thing that happened for me is that I was in some ways fortunate to be teaching a scripted balanced literacy program hmm. because I was able to see that they were purposely giving me lessons with particular books and when I started realizing, like, there's supposedly this promise that if a kid reads a level C book at an instructional level, that it will eventually become an independent level for that kid. And that will move up this stair step of reading levels. Um, but I, I, I remember laying the books out. So like levels, maybe it was A through E or something. And I was looking at them and I was realizing, like, huh. So in one series of books all about a dog, the kids are taught that when they see the picture of the bowl, they're supposed to say bowl. But then a couple books later in the same series about the dog, there's a picture of a bowl and now they're supposed to say dish. But I haven't taught them the sh sound to be able to do dish. So like, why did we just change from bowl to dish? And I was like, oh, because 
The intention isn't for them to really pay attention to the letters that are in the word. They're supposed to look at the picture, look at the first letter and guess what the word might be. And I'm actually supposed to be trying to help them realize that D and B are tricky. You know, and I just started realizing like, oh, these are purpose written texts that are designed to teach kids not to attend to the words too much because I'm trying to convince kids that English is unreliable and that they need to balance their memory of repeated pattern with the use of the pictures with a little bit of sampling of the letters on the page. And that, I think, is when I started realizing that I had been reading work by Ken Goodman and others who talked about how the goal is to get kids to not pay that much attention to the letters on the page. And I was like, oh, this is grounded in whole language. I see it now. Yeah. And then just the once you start understanding why it's so important for kids to actually decode the words, because that's how reading works, obviously. Um then you see how inefficient 3Qing is. Because like we were talking, I always yeah. use that word too, solving. Because they weren't really yeah. reading it. They were solving it. It just took so much time. like, And all yeah. these questions to get them to, and versus giving them words they can actually read based on what you've taught them. Have you found in your teaching, um, and I, can you talk a little bit about the things that balanced literature teachers hold so close, like the joy of reading and the love of reading. And, and we know that that's not the goal of reading. We instruction. We'd like them to love reading, but we can't guarantee it. The goal is to teach them to read. But can you speak to people who are concerned that um, this kind of teaching is going to be very lockstep and boring, and then kids aren't going to like to read after all? Um, well, I think when we have this idea that what teaching foundational skills in a systematic way looks like is like a teacher in front of a class where all the kids are sitting in rows, there's like 35 of them, they might be wearing uniforms and the teacher has like a ruler in hand and is like hitting a chalkboard or something like we have this idea of what that instruction looks like. And of course, we don't want it like we wouldn't probably have wanted to be a teacher if that's what we thought instruction was going to be. And so instead, we have this idea of the teacher who's like kneeling down next to some kids on the rug and you're like whispering with them about their text. And there's this beautiful like hushed reading that's all over the class. But, you know, we have this like warm and fuzzy thought about what it's supposed to be like. Um, but I think if we instead think about it from the kids perspective and think about what's really engaging to them, kids who don't know how to read don't want to sit there for 20 minutes with books. Five-year-olds don't want to <laughs> do yes. it. And like 11-year-olds don't want to do it. That's a long time to be faced with something that you know you actually don't know how to do. And we can't really speak things into existence by being like, you're good readers, you're good readers, like do what good readers do. Like it doesn't work like that. We actually need to teach kids. And when we teach kids and then give them the opportunity to practice the thing that we've taught them, they get so excited about their developing skill and there's some energy and enthusiasm about the instruction. So I think the best way for us to think about it is that if you're working with the balanced literacy model in mind, you are remaking your guided reading instruction. You're still doing foundational skills um, in a differentiated manner. You still have groups of kids who are with you getting the opportunity um, to get your instruction. But then the practice that they're doing, it's not just random books that they're picking from the library. It's carefully selected text that you are giving to them because you want them to practice the thing that you taught them. Yeah, for sure. If we were 
I could talk to you all night long, so, but I know you, you're going to teach tomorrow. So um, if, if you could talk to somebody who's just getting started now and maybe doesn't have um, the capacity or interest in doing what you did, which was what, you sh- what we would all love to do is sit down and really study those articles. What would be a good starting place for someone who's not, who wants to learn but feels a little challenged by everything that's out there? I think if you can find other people that you like, so teachers down the hall or just friends from another school, you're from your teacher preparation program, wherever it is, like connect with other educators and make a list of questions that you have. So for me, I wanted to know like, how do kids learn to read words? How irregular is English spelling? Um, what do I do for a kid who is at you know a particular grade level, third grade, and isn't making progress on reading assessments? Like, what am I supposed to do next? Or what's the diagnosis process for a kid who is struggling with reading? Like, whatever the questions are that you've had in the back of your mind mm-hmm. and you've really wanted an answer to, but you haven't really been able to, to face the fact that that's a question that's been looming. Um, I think brainstorming those questions and then actually starting to get excited about finding the answers to them, you start realizing like one question leads to another question leads to another question in a way that makes you want to talk about it. So the more you can talk to other people about what you're discovering and the more you can start pulling in people who actually have the answers to your questions. Mm -hmm. So not just like keep doing more of same, but somebody who says something and you're like, I have never thought about that before. Like that's a really interesting thing that prompts a whole lot of questions for me. Um, that's kind of when you know that you're getting out of your echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first thing that we have to do is start being willing to ask questions of people who aren't directly within our own community to be able to get access to some of the information that hadn't infiltrated balanced literacy. Now you are part of the Big Dipper course, correct? Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what that can do for people? I've taken it but I'd like to hear. Oh, you did? About that. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. So the history of that is actually that it was designed by people from a group of different organizations. So uh, the Reading League and Hill Learning Center and Barksdale Reading Institute and t- Teacher Top 10 Tools and then us from Read to Read Project. We pulled together to create a short course um, that was intentionally for TFA, people who were um, oh. getting their credentials. The idea was like, let's give them access to the information that we hadn't gotten when we were um, becoming credentialed teachers. And then we realized that there was a lot of content in the course that we were excited about, like infographics and stuff that we Mm -hmm, had wanted mm -hmm. to share. And so it turned into its own course. Um, And the idea is really just like an easy entrance point for people who are willing to spend a few hours but don't want to have to send like sign up for months long um, instruction and how to teach reading. And I think one of the things that mattered to me in the design of that course was to really confront head on, like, what are the differences? Like I was saying, I saw in Louisa Moat's article, the differences between balanced literacy and scientifically based reading. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really wanted to make sure that nobody had the haziness that I had had, which uh, was not really realizing the differences in those two approaches. Awesome. Well, well, we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes so people can check that out. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about the Right to Read project in your website? Yeah. So that started because I was in a balanced literacy district 
uh, doing a lot of work that was not on message. <laughs> and so I needed to be able to figure out like, where is the advocate me who is trying to expose teachers to information about um, evidence-based reading practices? And where is the part of me that's a district leader who is working in a balanced literacy district? And so I really needed to be able to differentiate between like me Margaret Goldberg, my private life and advocacy life, um, and when I'm an employee in a balanced mm-hmm. literacy district. Mm-hmm. And so what I started to realize is that teachers, um, advocates, researchers, all sorts of people wanted to be able to collaborate together to be able to give reliable information to teachers about how skilled reading develops. Um, and so it kind of became, I don't know what the best way to explain it is, but like, the opportunity for me to, I guess, to um, do for other people what I had wished had been done for me, which is like teacher to teacher, respectful communication in short, small chunks that don't make you feel stupid (laughs) when you're trying to get some questions answered. I always I always send people to your website for that reason, because you have such a kind way of talking. Um, even in your your uh, open letters to Lucy Calkins, <laughs> you, you're a lot more respectful than most people write those. Um, and I just find that very refreshing and encouraging because for so many people getting into the big Facebook groups, well, that can be extremely helpful. It also turns a lot of people away when they first get started because there's there's always someone in there who's shaming them for not knowing something. And uh, and you don't do that. And I really appreciate that. And I also appreciate that you're very open about your experience with balanced literacy because that makes people feel like they're not alone, that they weren't the only person who didn't who didn't have any clue, as a lot of us, the people I talk to in the series, they're all like, I just how did I not know this before? Like, so for me, when someone questioned me about um, three queuing way back in 2014, which was just a year after I started my website, um, and they said, you know, this is not backed by research. And I was like, what? Like, I had just gotten my master's a few years before. Um, she couldn't be right. Like, I was just sure she was wrong. Um, so I didn't really you know, I, I tried to talk to her about it in the comments a little bit. Finally, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I've got four little kids. <laughs> You're, and I, I just respectfully tried to disagree with her. Um, but it was years later that I that I found all this stuff, um, not because I wanted to, but because people were pressing me on it and asked me, hey, I read this article. What do you think? And I think it's, though, that same thing where it's like if someone confronts you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, it's very difficult to engage with them and nearly impossible sometimes to learn from them. But if we can talk to teachers respectfully, understanding that they have, in many cases, years worth of experience and years worth of experience that tells them that something works, right? Mm-hmm. Like no one is teaching in a balanced literacy classroom because, and like feeling like a failure. We stick with it because we see it works for a percentage of kids. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important is to be able to validate the experience teachers are having and then to help us understand like, and there is a way where you could reach all of them. Yeah. And I think one of the things that doesn't happen enough is we don't acknowledge the expertise of teachers. We don't acknowledge the evidence that they have in front of them that is telling them that something seems to be working. And what we really have to do is to be able to say, yes, and let's share some other strategies that you'll start realizing are working better for those kids that were always out of reach before. And then you start realizing, well, why don't I just use that for everybody? Yes. And then everything starts getting a little bit clearer in your mind. That was, for me, when I was joining the the uh, the, the big Science of Reading Facebook group, what I should have learned in college. Like I, I will say, when I first joined it, 
I could only be in it for like 10 minutes a day because I, I literally felt sick to my stomach reading all that stuff that I, scared me. Like it really called mm-hmm. into question how I taught. But what really helped was one day when one person mentioned balanced literacy does seem to work for some kids. It, it, yeah. it may work. But then for sometimes they get to like third grade and they hit a wall. And I just needed someone to say that because yeah. I taught my, my own kids to read with balanced literacy. They're fine readers. I mean, they could be better, like if, if mm-hmm. they knew all the structural literacy stuff, but they're good readers. Um, and then many of my students learn to read using balanced literacy. So that acknowledgement, I think, is really important. But then also... Absolutely. And maybe it worked for... Like, I was a balanced... I was a whole language kid. Like, I didn't learn how to genuinely spell until I... Just a few years ago. Okay. <laughs> it's like teaching phonics to kids, right? <laughs> like, I always thought, oh, I'm a good reader, but I'm not such a great speller. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize how interconnected those yes. were. And I also, like I told you, I felt so stupid when I was reading those scientific articles. Part of it is because I didn't have strong word attack skills. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I was realizing that I was missing a good portion of words on the page because I actually didn't have the strategies that I needed to break apart words with Latin and Greek suffixes and roots and all of that stuff. So I think um, one of the things that can be helpful is for us to realize that what we're trying to do for our students, in a lot of cases, it's doing better by them than what was done for us. Yes. Like we don't want our students to have to say like, oh, I'm not that good a speller. Yeah. Interestingly, I learned to read <laughs> the old fashioned way. So Did you? I was, yes. Well, I'm so against it all the time. I learned to read in the 80s and um, my teacher's in the, that was in um, Virginia. I don't know. You were in California. Did you grow up in California? Mm-hmm. I did. So I that, yeah. that was the home of whole language, language big time. Yeah. So I think for me, I just thought reading class was boring because I was an advanced reader and I just, I was very bored by just, you know, reading through the basil and everything. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's curious to me that I'm, that I was kind of against that structure when that, when obviously that worked for, for me learning to read and spell. It did. But if you think about the boredom that you're talking about, that reminds me of what we were speaking about earlier, like why teachers would be afraid of giving mm-hmm. up balanced literacy. Like they wouldn't want to bore a child like you. And I think that's why I really emphasize the importance of teaching foundational skills in differentiated groups so that no one does have that experience of being bored. Um, agreed. Kids are agreed. Actually being given the instruction that they need at a time that they need it agreed yeah I'm I'm a I beat that drum a lot I think that there there's a lot of just we could talk a whole other episode about that sometime <laughs> but I know there's some people are like what's well, okay if some kids are bored for 30 minutes like yeah but but there's so much we could teach them now that would be better for them yeah. and then they're not taking over the lesson for the kids over here that really need yeah. more focus um, but yeah that's that's for another day but um, thank you so much for talking with us. I'm going to link to all of the, the um, what, free webinars and things that I've heard you speak at in the show notes because I definitely recommend that people go check those out and to listen to you whenever they see that you're giving a talk because I always learn something new. That's lovely. Thank you so much. It was good to talk with you. I'm sure we can all agree there is so much to learn from Margaret Goldberg. So I encourage you to check out the show notes where you can find links to some of my favorite blog posts that she's written, as well as links to online videos and other workshops that she's done. So you can head to themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 86. And I'll talk to you next week. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.